Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Hello, welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. I'm here with Trey Henninger. For those of you who aren't aware, Trey runs a Substack called DIY Investing, where he goes over microcap opportunities, general investing concepts. He also has a YouTube channel where he goes through S&P 500 stocks, does like a 10-minute deep dive into the financials. He's a good follow on Twitter. He definitely comes from an interesting background. He started as he's an engineer. And uh, he's actually doing this with his own personal money. And I thought he'd be an ideal person to speak to. So welcome to the podcast, Trey. Thank you. Glad to be here. So do you want to talk a little bit about your evolution as an investor, like how you started, what you were interested in, and then how you've evolved to your current approach? Sure. So a quick you know, minute or two summary, my history with investing. I got started a little over a decade ago back in college, investing kind of internship money. I remember I made my first deposit of like $1,000. And at the time with commissions and everything like that, you know, being like 10 bucks, that's like 1% of my fees. So I would only buy one stock at a time just because of the amount of spending it costs for that. And I remember buying stock like Apple, Zynga. Zynga was, of course, really popular because they had Farmville on Facebook at the time. Various things like this, whatever I knew about, I bought because that's what I'd heard is what you should do. But it was basically no research. It was, oh, you heard about Buffett bought Bank of America. So I bought a hundred bucks of Bank of America and paid $10 in commissions and uh, ended up selling it later, not that long later and paying another $10 in commissions. So learning some lessons of that, starting with a small amount of money, kind of going through the process. But I think it was very important because you kind of learn by putting your money at risk. So it's something I always is think is a good practice, even though, of course, it's not like I made much money during that time. But it was just buying whatever's in the news, I think, kind of going through that process. But I'd always been attracted to value investing, the idea of paying 50 cents to get a dollar's worth of value always appealed to me. It just kind of clicked. And so over time, I started picking up, doing more research, reading different investing books. The Intelligent Investor was, I think, the breakthrough one for me in that regard, in large part because it has concepts, of course, of margin of safety, which fits in and was originally came from the engineering field. And so I think everything just kind of clicked for me that I wanted to buy stocks that were cheaper than they were worth. And so it kind of became, you know, like a hunt for the gold. And I started doing more research. I got better and better. And what I found over time was that I started at the large mega cap companies, like I said, Apple the Facebooks of the world, Microsoft's, everything that was really large. And I realized that I didn't have a competitive advantage in that area. And as I got smaller and smaller, I would have a better advantage over their investors. And this kind of just trended over time to realizing like, well, why am I not investing in the smallest companies? And so now I focus exclusively in my personal investing on micro caps which I think the current definition I go by is sub 500 million market cap and nano cash should be sub 50 million. I'd say the bulk of my portfolio is in companies with a market cap below 50 
million dollars, but I do own some that are in that more micro cap range as well. That's interesting. So when you started, it sounded like you were more into the Peter Lynch approach by what you know. Yes. I mean, I was reading everything. At the, I mean, when you're college, you, you have so much free time. It's crazy. And so I was reading everything. I had a lot of different influences and was kind of like picking up nuggets, you know, so I had that nugget by what you know, which I still think is a good practice. And it's a great starting point for many investors. And it's something you can certainly continue on. The only reason I went away from it more in terms of the true Peter Lynch approach of where like, oh, like, what do you buy for your laundry detergent or whatever like that is just because those companies that are so well known tend to be very, very large. And as an individual investor, I have a limited amount of time. So I'm not a professional investor at this current moment, though that is my what I'm striving to make a transition towards over time. But the time you have is maybe five, 10 hours a week. And so if you're going to compete against hedge funds where the portfolio manager is putting in 60 plus hours a week and they have 10 analysts working for them putting in 60 hours a week. Well, you have five to 10 hours and you're putting it up against 600. So how do you win? Well, you, you can't play the same game as them. And so I had to move away from kind of that true Peter Lynch where you're just the stuff you know super well, but it's more how do I take what I know and apply it to companies that are smaller? So you know, I'm an engineer by background. And so my career has been working in like manufacturing businesses. So I own a lot of manufacturing companies, or I have a lot of my investments in manufacturing, because I know manufacturing, even though I don't know those specific products, for instance. And so that's like one way that I've adapted that approach. But by focusing on a $5 million company, instead of a $500 billion company, I don't compete at all, basically with large hedge funds. They can't buy stock in the companies I buy. And so I'm mainly fighting, competing against other individuals, which I believe offers me better prices and the potential to outperform. That makes sense. Yeah. And I've gone through a funny cycle with Peter Lynch. First, I did the buy what you know thing when I started investing. And then I was like, well, it's more complicated than that. But lately, I've been thinking, well, if I just bought companies and stuff I like, like Apple, Domino's, <laughs> Hershey, <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably be a lot better off if I just stuck to that. But yeah, but I mean, what you're saying makes sense. You want to, you're going to a micro cap space where there's not as much competition. That's exactly right. I mean, I think the Peter Lynch approach works very well. Certainly, I mean, the way you approach it, I mean, there's a lot of stocks that you own or have bought or written up recently that I have owned in the past. And it's, I basically never lost money on those companies. Did I outperform? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But I mean, I've owned a Hershey, I've owned Apple. I think they're great companies. But the problem is everyone knows they're a great company. And so you have to, if you're going to invest in those companies, you have to take an approach like you are, where you have a big enough watch list, and then you're selective when you buy in, right? So that you can still get those good prices. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how do you find ideas in the microcap space? There's two ways I find ideas. The... Marketing answer is you start at the A's and go to the Z's, like Buffett says, where, you know, you just open up, you know, like OTC Markets has lists and lists of companies, and you can just go line by line and do an analysis. It's what I've been doing on my YouTube channel with the S&P 500 stocks is I just downloaded a list of all 500 companies, and I've been working literally A to Z, which I think is very helpful in terms of practice because you analyze the big companies are really 
easier to analyze because you have more information. They're easier to make sense of when you know the products and things like that. So you can learn industries better. And so that same process can apply to microcaps. But if you think about microcaps in general, they're basically half the market. So if there's 10,000 companies out there, 5,000 of them are microcaps. And so that's a lot of companies. And so you can do an A to Z approach. You just have to be disciplined about eliminating companies quickly. The second answer, which is probably the most accurate answer in terms of what actually makes it into my portfolio is through recommendations from other people. So I've curated a list of other investors who have similar philosophies as mine, sometimes very different, but basically they're shopping in the same space. So other microcap investors, they might be looking for different things than I am. And sometimes I buy the things they reject, which is my ongoing joke with one of my friends, uh, Elementary Value. He has great write-ups and and I'm sure he's outperforming me by a, a ton, but I've basically bought the stuff he doesn't buy. And that's worked out for me and the stuff he's buys worked out for him. But it's following different groups, especially Twitter is a great resource for that, where you can follow a hundred different investors. And then just every time someone mentions a stock that is in your area, you write it down and then you analyze it. And so that's where I get kind of like a pre-curated list, which I've found to be a lot more helpful. And then a lot of times by just putting myself out there, publishing blog posts, publishing on Substack, publishing on YouTube, you know, writing on Twitter, people send me ideas. And that has been a very productive way to find stocks. People send you their favorite idea. And if someone has a favorite idea, then it's usually worth at least five minutes of my time. And sometimes I've made a lot of money from that. So I think that's probably my most productive uh, sourcing. Interesting. And do you do any screening? No. No screening. So you're looking for, you're not looking at like a deep value basket or anything like that. You're, you're kind of hunting around all over. Yeah. I Screening, that's why I you know, said like the A and the A to Z thing is like the marketing answer because it's what you supposed to say and it's something that you do, but it's like, well, how many ideas do you get from that versus other ways? And screening is the same sort of thing where, yeah, you're supposed to screen. I think screens work way better in larger companies. The problem with screens is that they're not going to show you the micro caps that are going to give you the best returns. It's my view. Now, there's certain aspects of the screening which are helpful, which I'm basically doing once I'm researching the idea. Like I don't want to buy companies that aren't making money. So I want profitable companies. I want companies that aren't doing a bunch of dilution. I want companies that are relatively high quality. So I'm screening them when I'm researching them based upon stuff like return on equity, return on capital, how much debt do you have? But I'm not running a screen where I look at all 5,000 and I filter it down to 50. That's not what I'm doing. I'm looking at the ones that have been like pre-curated to me from my different sources. And then when I'm doing a deep dive on them, 10, 15 minutes, and I'm screening them out like that on an individual basis. Yeah, I've had a interesting relationship with screens. I do find even in large in the large cap space, when you're looking through a screen, it's usually not like the cheapest thing that performs the best. It's always something in like the 15 to 20 PE versus like the sub 5 PE. That's what I found is that the best ideas are kind of deeper in the screen and a lot of it boils exactly. down to business quality. And if you are really strict with the screen, you'll probably miss some good opportunities. Exactly. So 
You mentioned that you follow a lot of investors on Twitter and source them for ideas. Who are some good followers on Twitter that you look at? Well, I think everyone should follow Value Stock Geek. <laughs> he has some great ideas <laughs> and write-ups. Oh, wait, I'm talking to you. I mean, there's some, there's a whole range of, of people, depending upon what you're looking for. I recently got some good ideas from Dirt Cheap Stocks. He's been covering some of these ECIP banks. Basically, the government paid out a bunch of free money to some minority banks in the United States. And it basically turned these pretty large, basically turned a bunch of banks into net. So that was really interesting. And it's an idea I wouldn't have found going myself. Or if I would have, it would have involved some measure of luck. I like following dividend growth investor. I mean, we have very different philosophies, but it's the whole idea is you want to follow people with different philosophies. You want to follow people that don't invest just like you because you want your process to be somewhat unique. I mean, that's something you develop over time. It's really hard to set out, like sit down and like buy a book, like, oh, this is how I'm supposed to invest. It doesn't really work. You need to find what works for you, like your own particular bent on things. But I like drawing from different people's work, even though we know we look at different stuff. Like if I get one idea from you, and that's the one place we overlap. Well, I can make a lot of money on one idea. And so I'm perfectly fine stealing one idea from someone's 30 stock portfolio. Like you don't have to be concentrated like me. You can be diversified. I just need to take stuff. So I mean, I like Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding. Let's see, who else can I can I call out and compliment here? I really like Ralph Invests. I'm going to miss people and then they'll get back to me. But uh, oh, No Name Stocks is one that I, I should call out. I've gotten some some good ideas from them as well. So, I mean, it's just some different I, different people. Usually some of the best ones that I like almost never post. And what's good about that is that it means that there's a high signal to noise ratio. So if they put out a post, they put out like an idea, I can immediately research it and in 30 minutes determine, is this something that's interesting for me? Or is it just something that's interesting for them? And then I can make a quick investment decision. Usually I know exactly what I'm looking for before I ever open something up. So I, I can quickly eliminate ideas. But the ones that are best is when someone puts out, you know, stock ideas and you can kind of say, hey, does this fit me or does this just fit them? So yeah, those, that's, that's a list of some great followers. I know Andrew Kuhn and Jeff Gannon in particular, I've learned a lot from following Andrew Kuhn on Twitter and then listening to their to their podcast over the years. I know I've learned a tremendous amount uh, listening to to Jeff and Andrew chat about investing. Yeah, and so that's that's really good too. People who focus on ideas are the most valuable, I think. People who are reviewing actual stocks, I find less in terms of like a curation list for ideas. It's less on someone that's just doing over generalized focus on investing. And so like when I'm producing content, I kind of do a mix of both, right? Depending upon where you're looking at my my content, I kind of try and like split those so that people that are looking for one thing know where it is. But yeah, I think you can get a lot of value from focus compounding stuff. I've certainly gotten some ideas from them and I know I've bought stocks from something they've covered and made some good money off of it. So, I mean, you can make a lot of money just listening to a podcast and getting one idea off of it, even if they don't buy it. And I know I bought a stock that they haven't bought, made some good money off of it. Yeah, and I do find that podcasts where they do talk about individual situations, very valuable. A lot of times when you're doing a financial podcast, there's a need to pump out as much content as possible. So that inevitably leads you to talk a lot about macro and market conditions and that stuff's fine in moderation, but uh, it starts to 
divert from the stuff that's actually important? I mean, I'm an investor. I think macro is super entertaining, mm-hmm. but that's what it is. It's entertainment. It's, it's distraction. It's, I mean, so will I consume? I mean, because like, for instance, like the Focus Compound, they've recently started, started covering the macro stuff. And that's like my favorite part of the podcast because it's mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. Is it the most valuable? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's probably more distracting to my performance, but it's the most enjoyable. And so like, but like, that's how this, this works. I mean, interviews are really fun to listen to, but do they help you find ideas? It depends on the interview, but it's, it's like a lot, the way that, like you said, like if you have to put out a content a week, well, you're going to have a new stock idea every week. No, like you really can't like one that's like good, like you can cover a new stock every week. You can cover a new stock every month, but like, are you going to have something worth buying on a schedule? No. No. Even if you're diversified, I don't think you can schedule good ideas. Maybe that's a hot take, but I think it makes it difficult for some of these content production type investing businesses. I'm in the process of myself, so I'll take it for what it is. Yeah, I think you're right. I I mean, there are periods in the market where there's really nothing to do but sit around and wait. Like through a lot of 2021, I pretty much didn't do anything. And uh, then 2022, some interesting opportunities popped up. But for the most part, a lot of it is a waiting game. What, I, what I've been doing in times when I can't find anything to go out and buy, uh, what I've been doing is doing similar to what you're doing on your YouTube channel is go out and look at companies. They might be too pricey right now, but I can get a good watch list together when there's some event in the market that takes place where there's a lot of bargains that are available. And I think in the market, it's a lot of when it rains, it pours. There tends yes. to be a lot of things that happen at once and you spend a lot of time waiting around for things to happen. Yes, that's, and I think that's key. I mean, that, that's what's been good seeing your process is you're not focused on, do I have to make a buy decision today? You know, you, you go through and you, you're saying, okay, well, what is this business? Let me understand the business so that if the price hits what I want, if the price is great today, then awesome. But, but when the price hits what I want, I already know the business and I know I'm capable of buying it instead of when this stuff hits, now I need to go research it right now because it's very difficult then to move faster than others, especially if you're not a professional spending 60 hours and, and you have a whole team where they can, with, you know, you're going to be at a disadvantage. So you need to do your work in advance so you can move quickly because these opportunities sometimes don't last very long. I mean, I remember March 2020, it was like everything crashed for like three weeks. And then three weeks later, it was up 40%. I mean, I don't, those timelines might not, might not be perfect, but it was kind of crazy because you like hit a bottom and you spiked up. Yeah, it was insane. And there's moments like that all the time in the market. Uh, December 2018 was kind of a more muted version of that. But yeah, you'll, you'll occasionally get these panicky times when there's a lot of opportunities available. And I think you're right. Like you want to be able to act fast when it does happen. In addition to that, you want to kind of keep your wits about you. So if you've already done the work on some companies, it's a lot easier to make a buy decision than to have to rush and look through 20 companies popping up in a screen and try to figure out which ones you want to buy. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's tough because what I've found is when I'm thinking about like what my actual process is, because there's all, there's all ways that you talk about it is, a really good idea for me, I know within five minutes is a really good idea. And like in terms of like where this is a quality business, it's a great management team, this is a great price. You know 
instantly. You still need to do the work to like complete that out. But there's a lot of times I know instantly, hey, I'm going to end up buying this. And so then I just have to be disciplined and do the work to, to prove it out. But for the most part, I also know that if I don't get triggered in that five minutes, it's like, eh, there's very little chance this is ever going to become a holding. Because I run such a concentrated book, you know, I own five. Well, right now I own four stocks. I guess I just opened a fifth stock position, but I basically own four stocks today. And so it's, you don't buy much with that. And so to get there, it's like, you know, instantly when you have really good ideas. And that's what I found. And I think that's true even when you have bigger portfolios. Yeah, I think that's true. I I definitely agree that when you come across a good idea, it just hits you over the head and it is a great idea. Then the research process is, I think it's more like a home inspection. Like when you go and you are buying a home, you're going to know if it's a house you like, you're going to know if it's a good price relatively quickly. And then you got to do a home inspection, looking for termites and things like that that might kill the deal. Yeah, I, I agree. Like you know a lot of what you need to know almost immediately by looking at the company. Yeah, and some of that's pattern recognition, right? I mean, you already know what types of things you like, what what types of things you've made investments on and been profitable in the past. And I think those kind of patterns build up. I mean, what I was told or what I read from kind of one of the investors that I really learned a lot from. And that was like not a one-on-one interaction, but through the internet was joshuakinnon.com. He has his archives up. He's not currently writing anymore, but I, I've read his whole writings multiple times through. But one of the things he, he talks about is like for him, it took a decade of investing until it clicked where he could wow. see like an investment. He could understand basically investing to the point, like not, you know, he's not a perfect investor at that point. But to where like things all clicked, like the cash flow statements fit with the income statements and the balance sheet and like where it all just kind of starts making sense and you can actually start investing. And that's what I've kind of found myself. It was like, well, after about a decade, it kind of clicked. And so before then, I don't think I could have made five minute decisions or 10 minute decisions or an hour decision. Even it was like, oh, I could just do infinite research and I'd never really know or have conviction. Now it's like. I can just see, I, you know, when I see an idea, it, it will instantly leap out to me because of the pattern recognition. And so that's when I always pass on is like, well, I do think it kind of takes about a decade of doing consistent work to learn and have it all kind of fall into place. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, with me, I definitely started out trying a number of different things, reading a lot of books. Then you see, okay, these are things you should care about. You can care about low price to free cash flow. You can care about a high ROIC. But you don't really know what that means until you actually start investing in businesses and you see how it actually works in the real world. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned Joshua Kennan. So are those blog articles still available online? I've never heard of them. Yes. So joshuakinnon.com, it's, the Kennan is K-E-N-N-O-N. It's his personal blog. So he has an interesting story. He was always interested in investing. He he started writing from a very young age when he was a teenager. And he actually you know published an investing book before going to college. And he has this one story he tells where he's like, he's sitting in a college finance course and they're teaching from his book. And the professor's quoting him while he's sitting in the classroom. Wow. <laughs> and... I can't remember what he said if he if he brought it up or not or, or or what have you. But it's one of these things where he you know he ended up writing for a bunch of different websites. He he had his own personal blog as well, kind of covering more technical and in depth stuff. So I read a bunch of his content. 
he actually then started, I don't know if it's a hedge fund or segmented managed accounts a few years ago. And as part of that process, stopped writing publicly and focuses on his own um, investment management company. So I know he's, he, his investment management company, I think, already has over has at least $100 million in management. And that was a couple of years ago. So it's interesting. He basically was a writer. He ran his own business on the side and then was able to build up his own self-made capital. And then starting a started a management firm a few years ago. So it, it's an interesting story because it's, you know, kind of mirrors kind of what I'm interested in doing myself. So I've learned a lot from, from him. I definitely recommend his whole backlog. That's cool. I'll, I'll check out that blog. That sounds super interesting. Um, going back to your portfolio. So you're talking, you were talking about how ideas hit you over the head. So if you were to put that into like a checklist, what are some of the big things on your checklist? To me, it's three things. There are three, three big things. And so, you know, the checklist is probably longer, but it's three categories. So I think about quality, value, and capital allocation. And then that capital allocation could be called management, however you want to call it, because really management controls capital allocation. The quality, value, and capital allocation, I believe, are the value, are the drivers of an investor's profits. And so I'm an investor, so I care about what the investor is going to get a return on. Because if I'm going to beat the market, I need to see my return. So let's talk quality. Quality means not what my version of quality is not what the market says quality. You know, quality talks about, okay, are we talking about, you know, high returns on capital? Yeah, that's part of it. But when I'm thinking about quality, I'm thinking about predictability. I think you can be a quality business that has a 5% return on equity as long as you are 100% predictable. Like you're going to earn 5% every year forever. That can be a quality business. Just like a quality business could be 20% return on capital that's highly predictable and is going to earn 20%. But what I don't want is to earn 20% one year, 12% the next, 25%, 8%, and it bounces around. I'd rather have the 5% company on a quality basis. Now, they might get hit on value or whatever. That's my quality side. It's about predictability because the most important thing for me as an investor on a quality standpoint is can I predict the next 10, 20, 30 years of this business? And the vast majority of companies are going to fail that because they, and that's what, if you watch my videos on the S&P 500 companies, I'm trying to explain this process because you can instantly pull up a chart of the last 20 years of return on invested capital, which is great with what, what they have at quickfs.net is the service I use for these videos. They just give you this chart and you can, in one look, five seconds tell, is this a quality business? And I, you know, I spent a little bit more time talking through it, but that's what I mean is like, how easily can I predict the future? Because what I don't want to do is buy a company I think is high quality and then their returns get worse or they bounce around a lot or they face a recession or COVID happens and the business goes under. I'm trying to avoid that because what quality is doing is it's protecting my downside. It's protecting my risk. It's one measure of margin of safety there. Value encompasses price and growth. So usually people with growth might throw growth under quality or things like that, or even with the return on invested capital. I think the return on invested capital, the price, the growth all goes under value because what value is telling me is how much am I getting for the price I pay, right? And that really formulaically means I see no difference between value and growth. I think growth is a subset of value. They're not separate factors. So again, this is you know, outside of what the mainstream would tell you about how these things are looked at. But I think you can be a value company with low growth and a value company with high growth. It's all about what is their price relative to those pieces. And so value, I'm going to be looking at high returns on invested capital, 
which to me means return on invested capital above 10%, return on equity above 15%. Because I want to beat the market, markets average about 10% a year, I need those numbers to be above 10%. And really, I'm hitting 15% because what I have found is that with those numbers that you see are their historical performance. And data suggests that your performance gets worse over time. So I need some measure of margin of safety there. So I really want that 15% plus. And then growth should go in line with the return on invested capital. You want to be able to have them self-fund their growth. So they need to be you know, growing 10 to 10% plus would be ideal. And then, of course, value means your price needs to be reasonable. I don't really want to pay a company above a 15 PE. Ideally, single digits is best. But... I'm okay paying 12, 13 times earnings if a company's got a really good return on invested capital, it's high quality, and stuff like that. And then the capital allocation is, I think, the piece that many investors don't do as much on is how is the money being spent? So this is where you go into like cash flow statement. You're really understanding what the business is doing, really understanding how management thinks about it. I don't want to see any stock-based compensation. I would be totally fine if there's no buybacks where you have stable shares outstanding, but I don't want them issuing any shares at all ever. But there are companies I own that issue some shares, but I wanna see how are they disciplined with that capital allocation. I don't wanna see a lot of acquisitions usually because as acquisitions tend to waste money, but it's basically, what are they doing with the shares? Where's the cash going? Is it going to growth that's coming in at high returns? Is it going to buybacks, is it going to dividends? and checking to see where that money is going because that capital allocation drives my return. There's a lot of great businesses with bad capital allocation. And I'm happy to call out a few big ones like a lot of the FANG type companies where they have something like other bets and, oh, look at these great businesses we have. And then we're burning 50 billion here. <laughs> that would be, I'm not, I know some of them actually call it other bets. I'm not trying to call out that company in particular. But I'm trying to say there, <laughs> but but there are some companies that have some of the world's greatest businesses, and then they burn the cash. And I would have bought them if they didn't burn the cash. And so, knowing what's going on with that cash, I mean, because if you think about the difference between you know what Buffett's doing, where that money's being reinvested in other high quality businesses, or some companies just pay out dividends, or some companies like an AutoZone just does cannibals and buys back 90% of their shares over 20 years, you get very different results. And so those are my three categories, quality, value, and capital allocation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So back to value. So you mentioned like PEs. Um, are there any particular, uh, are there other value metrics that you look at? And do you have any like hard cutoffs like how you pay over this? So when I'm talking on a podcast or I'm producing content, I use PE almost exclusively. And the reason for that is everyone can look up PE ratio and there's really no argument about what the PE of the company is. And now I am talking about trailing 12 month PE numbers, not forward earnings, none of this operating earnings stuff. But the reason I do it is I'm talking gap PE because those numbers are not disputable about what they are. Is that the number that matters? No. The number that matters is like your owner's earnings. It's, it's how much cash is available to be played out. You could have two companies both earning, you know, $100 a share and trading at a PE of 15. But then one has true free cash flow of $90 and the other one has true free cash flow of $20. Obviously, you want to own the one with 90, not the 20. And so it's not a substitute for the analysis of the quality of those earnings. 
but that is very difficult to explain and it's very easy to argue and get into minutiae. And I don't bother arguing with people on the internet. And so I use a simple PE number and I don't use any other metrics for value because in terms of debating with other people about companies, but in terms of what I actually do, I'm using like a price to owner's earnings. And so my definition of owner's earnings closely matches Buffett's, but it's basically what is your, you know, earnings. And so like, but I don't use like EBITDA. I start at net income and I will willingly add back depreciation, but I'm going to subtract CapEx and I'm going to multiply or no. Okay. See, I hate doing math on the air. Uh, (laughs) The main piece to understand is what I have found is people tend to do this math wrong. In my opinion, they will take credit for depreciation off and they'll say, oh, this is actually cash. But then they won't take enough off on the CapEx. They'll say, oh, well, my depreciation's you know, 2000, my CapEx 2500 or something like that. What they need to understand is that depreciation is only historic, right? So if you spent $2,000 on that equipment 10 years ago, it might cost 4000 to replace it today. And so you need to adjust depreciation up always, almost always. Now, I'm not going to go into real estate because those people have been arguing with me on the internet recently, but almost always your depreciation in the past understates your current cost to replace the equipment. And so what that means is your free cash flow is almost always lower than your net income. And yet what I see is most of the time when people adjust earnings, they're ending up with a number higher than their net income. And that should be a red flag to you that you've done something wrong. And so I care about price to owner's earnings, but I do have my own way of calculating it. That's basically trying to get at a true free cash flow. But that free cash flow number is not EBITDA. It's not EBIT. I think interest is a real cost. I think depreciation is a real cost. And I think taxes are a real cost. So I don't add those back. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, when you look at free cash flow or EBITDA, I know when you look at if you look at three different websites for what they have for free cash flow and EBITDA for a company, you'll wind up with three different answers. So it's always good to go in and actually calculate it yourself and see what you actually think. Well, and then even worse than that is like the S&P 500. No one can seem to agree on what the S&P 500 PE ratio is today. It's because yeah, most, most of the websites don't use gap earnings for one. A lot of times they'll use operating earnings. So they're, they're not even counting taxes and, and interest. You know, they, 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 just, they just assume that the guest doesn't get paid. And a lot of times they're using forward numbers. So those aren't even real numbers. They're just estimates. And so, I mean, I'll sit there and argue with people. It's like, oh, the PE is 28. And they'll say the PE is 17. What are you talking about? And so that's why I stick to Gap and I just don't argue with people. Yeah, that's, that's, a, pretty, uh, that's a pretty solid approach. So yeah, and then on the quality front, I have noticed on your YouTube videos, you always want to see, I know QuickFS always has that nice chart there where it shows ROIC. And I noticed that you're very much, that's one of the first things you look at and you're looking for a consistent ROIC. So I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, and what that, it's, it's telling you about the business. I mean, when you're, an, when you're analyzing stocks, you're analyzing businesses, right? And I know you know this, but the idea is just, it tell the numbers can tell you a story. Now, again, I'm an engineer, so this is how I look at it. But the numbers tell you the story of the company, right? And so you dive in there and you're trying to see, well, what is this? What's going on? And like consistent return on invested capital isn't important for what it means just because, oh, it's consistent. It's like 
No, this tells you the business is strong. Yeah. Because the business can charge the same price every year or better. Because what's happening is they're maybe they're reinvesting money, which means their actual capital has gone up. So in order to maintain their return on invested capital, they have to be making more money every year. Right. Like and so it's understanding the relationship between what that number is actually telling you. And then if it's going up and they're reinvesting capital. They're getting better and better accelerating returns, even better than what the number might say on its base. So it tells you so much about the business, just understanding like how that relationship is over over time. And that, that's one piece I definitely learned from focus compounding. You know, they focus, I think, on the coefficient of variation. And I haven't really bothered calculating the number because I think you can, if you get look at enough of these, you can kind of just see it. And so I don't really bother with the calculation to care, oh, this one's like 5% better than the other one. But that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And seeing that consistency is super important. I know that when you look at a business and QuickFS has 20 years of data. So you look back at that, that's multiple economic environments. That's a real estate bubble, crash, you know, a kind of lukewarm environment in the early 2010s where the economy wasn't doing great, but it was growing. You've got COVID in there. You've got a boom in there. And if someone can just kind of stay steady through all of that, I think you know you're dealing with a pretty good business. Yeah, which I think is true for, I mean, I've covered some of the companies that, that I know you own. I mean, you look at some of these and they're just flat or they're, they're steadily improving lines. And that includes, you know, 2002 recession, 2008, you know, COVID, like everything you said. And then some are all over. And, and I think, you know, I've done... I don't know if it's 150, 200 of the companies in the S&P 500 already so far on my YouTube channel. And like, if you watch those or you've gone through this journey with me or someone else is what, you know, goes back and watches them. Like it's, I don't think people realize how different companies look like there are totally different ways a company can look simply on this chart. And that's kind of where I'm getting into this. Like you can make a five minute decision. Like some of these companies, every recession, they're losing money. Right. And some of the companies, every recession, they have a 25% return on invested capital. Right. The investor is going to do much better in the second company. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, if you're dealing with a highly cyclical company, then you need to have some insight into the macro cycle. You need to be able to say, oh, well, I think there's going to be a recovery this year and they're not going to get wrecked the way they would normally get wrecked in a recession. And to me, that's not a really a winnable game. You can't really, if you could predict when recessions or when booms and busts are going to happen, then that's just another game. And like, do you really want to play that with an individual stock? I, I just don't want to play that game. Yeah. I, I mean, if someone else can do it, it's your money to make. I won't compete with you. I can't do it. <laughs> Yeah, like I think and like some good examples of that today are like oil and home builders right now. I see a lot of value pitches for value in home builders, but they're notoriously hyper cyclical businesses. And to invest in them, I really think you need to have a view on where oil prices are going and where housing demand is going. Those are extremely difficult games to play. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you need to have a view like that, it just becomes very, very difficult because it just, it, you then have to be able to predict all that. And I don't know, not something I'm good at. Right. So going back to your concentration. So you mentioned you own five stocks. So do yes. you always own five stocks or is that something 
did you originally have a bigger portfolio and slim it down? And then like, how'd you kind of get to that number? So I've been tracking my portfolio performance for the last three years. December ended three years. So I'm like three years and a quarter now of kind of like how I've been managing in a professional manner. And during that period, I've stuck to a target of five stocks. Now, it's always not always been five stocks because maybe I'm turning over a stock. So it goes down to four, goes down to three, goes back up to five, something like that, or up to six and then back down. But generally, my target right now is five stocks with a general, you know, 20% weighting each is the general target that I've been running for the last three plus years. And is my intention to run for ever at this point because I feel like I've settled into a really good strategy. But that's not always been the case. When I first got started, I was a big believer in diversification and I owned more stocks. I think I probably peaked in the 15 to 20 range. I never really got up to 30. I just didn't have enough ideas. What I found was I was in the 12, 15 range and I just didn't know some of these companies. So as I become a better investor, I would look at some of the stocks I own. I was like, well, why do I own this? Like I progressed my strategy into like high quality businesses. And then I'd see, oh, well, I'm owning these low quality companies. And so maybe I'd sell this one or that one. And then I wouldn't find another one to replace them because I'm like, well, there's nothing better than what I have in my portfolio. And what I started to do, especially as I transitioned, the final transition was like down from like large caps to micro caps because like I'd already transitioned to like quality businesses. And that took me like eight or nine stocks. And then I, I was like, well, I can't. I needed to get down to a lower number of stocks to sleep better at night. And normally people, it's for most people, it's the other way. But I was most comfortable sleeping at night, knowing exactly what I owned and the exact reason I was going to help perform with that stock. And that, it, you know, like and the exact reason I felt it was safe. And for me, that was easier with less stocks than more stocks. And so even though my concentration went up from, you know, 5% in a company to, or 10% in a company up to 20 to 25% for my current largest companies over 60% of my portfolio. That's easier for me to sleep at night than when I had 10, 15 up to, to about 20 stocks. So I basically sold everything I wasn't willing to, to own. And then I never found companies that were better than what I had. So when I had new money, I just bought the same stuff I had. And so it, or, you know, new things where, I never really had more than five really, really good ideas at a time. That's what I've found. And that's worked for me. Gotcha. Yeah, and that makes that makes a lot of sense. So when you're in these five positions, how do you approach when to buy, when to sell? How long do you typically hold on to them? So my current strategy is a focus on high quality businesses with very strong capital allocation at a good price. But I want to own long-term high growth businesses as well. And so kind of how that becomes in terms of terminology is like, I'm looking for 10 baggers. I like the idea of, you know, Chris Meyer has this a lot of coverage on hundred baggers. I think those are harder to predict and they take a much longer period of time. And he even makes the recommendation, it's easier to predict a 10 bagger. And so I'm targeting a 10 bagger in 10 to 15 years, which would average about a return of about 27% instead of enabled to hit that mark. So the company would basically compound my money at 27% if they hit that mark. Maybe it's 15 to 27% depending upon how many years. And so what does that require? That requires a really cheap price usually, and it requires a growing business. And so you're going to get a combination of multiple expansion as well. So what that means is I'm targeting holding these companies for 10 to 15 years or more. 
I'm sort of perfectly happy to owning them forever. There's at least one company I own that I'm convinced I'll hold to the point where it's a hundred bagger, but there's only one of those. And the rest of them I'm targeting for 10 bagger status. And so I'm not trying to turn them over quickly. However, I would sell them if they accelerate quickly, right? So like if I get a 10 bagger in five years, it's going to be way more profitable than if it took 15 years. I just can't predict that. And so the way I actually buy is I'm trying to buy what I consider the ingredients for a 10 bagger. And that means it needs to be growing double digits a year. So that's why I say like 10 to 15% growth is kind of like your minimum to hit this based upon the studies I've seen. It needs to be self-funding all that growth. So they can't be taking on debt to do it. They can't be take, having to leverage up constantly to do it. So you need to have return on invested capital substantially higher than their growth rate, which would be you know, 15, 10, 15, 20% or is a good target range. And then you need to have a cheap enough price because the price needs to be less than fifth PE of 15 in order to get me to buy it. And that's because the only way I can achieve my 10-bagger is if there's no multiple contraction during my holding period. And so PE of 15 is the S&P 500's average. And so if I buy at 15 or less, then I'm saying, okay, well, I'm not going to have to worry about multiple contraction. But what I'm hoping for is multiple expansion because that will really drive your growth. So if your multiple doubles over 10 years, that's going to add 7% to your return. So like if I buy at a PE of 10 and it goes to PE of 20, then I'm going to get a 7% boost to my return per year over that period. So if I get 10% growth and a 3% dividend and 7% multiple expansion, that's a 20% annual return. And so that's going to be a, you know, a, a 10 bagger in 12, 13 years, you know, something like that. I'm ballparking that math. So it's, it's going to be a little bit off, but that's the basic premise is I don't plan on multiple expansion. So I buy to get a 10% return with no multiple expansion. And that's because I'm, you know, basically ensuring I don't get multiple contraction. But the multiple expansion is what can drive the 10-bagger in the time period I'm targeting. Does that make sense? Or I think yeah, I no, no, that well. makes a lot of sense. I, I think about it in a similar way. So when I look at a stock, I'm trying to figure out, is there any opportunity for multiple expansion? Will I get some yield? Will I get some growth? And I really think those three things are the main drivers calculate your future return. And I think every investor before they buy a stock should have some estimate of what they're going to get there. And I, I also agree with you about multiple expansion. So it's nice to have, but you don't want to depend on your return for that, um, where you need the PE to get to a certain level. Like it's nice when yield and growth in the business can get you there without any multiple expansion. And then when that comes along, it's kind of like a nice to have. Yeah. And I think... Multiple expansion in my studies of other investors, market bidding investors, is really the source of the alpha in my portfolio. So if I never get multiple expansion, I expect to match the S&P 500. If my stocks do what I expect, I will probably get multiple expansion. And the speed at which that occurs determines how much alpha I would have. So if they expand quickly and I'm able to get that boost, then that can be a really big difference. You know, for instance, if it doubled in five years, and I'm talking about a 14 to 15% year boost. And so that's where you start to see some of the returns I've actually seen in my portfolio where I'm starting and where you get that extra 15% a year. It's like, well, you can't plan on that, but that really gets you into the 20% plus range. Yeah, that makes sense. And then when you what you're talking about where multiple expansion is the major source of alpha, I, I also agree with that. I mean, you want to buy a business where it can deliver the return without it, 
But yeah, if you're going to beat the market, you definitely need situations where you, something is mispriced, where you're buying something at a low multiple, and eventually when the market recognizes what you recognize, it should trade at a higher multiple. Exactly. So you also mentioned that you have a potential 100 bagger in your portfolio. So if you don't mind, do you want to talk about some of your positions that you own right now? I can. I the the one stock I will I mean the stock I will not talk about is the hundred packer one because I consider myself I consider that uh, a company that I plan to continue be, to be a net buyer probably every year for the next three decades. So I try. I, I am incentivized on that one. I mean I can't make enough money from people following me or whatever to offset the rise in in the expense it would cost me to buy that that stock if the multiple expands. Yeah, so I hope the multiple never expands. You know, one of the th stocks that I think is a, is a really good example of what I talk about, and it's, it's my largest position, and so it's the one I have my highest conviction in. It is one I fall in ten bagger bag bucket. Is Solitron Devices? I've talked about it before in other venues, but it's currently over sixty percent of my portfolio. So, I mean, when I say high conviction, it's a high conviction company. I first bought it at a price of mark when the market cap was four to five million dollars. It's currently about twenty million dollars market cap. And so I'm up about 4x on that company. And so one of the things that's interesting with that is when I bought it at a you know price of, let's call it four and a half million, my expectation for earnings was $500,000 a year. So I was buying at about nine times earnings. I think their current earnings power is somewhere in the range of two to three. What's my current? Maybe, a, maybe $3 million a year. So their earnings power over the last three years since I bought it is up about 6x. And the stock is up less than that. So the stock's up 4x. They went from you know 5 million to 20 million market cap. And then I think that their earnings power is about 3 million a year. So they're currently trading at a PE of seven on a earnings power basis. Now the reported earnings are a lot more, are more volatile than that because they just moved facilities. But this is a manufacturer. They make defense electronics. The primarily primary customers Raytheon, and what's really interesting about the company today that wasn't true in the past is when I bought them, they actually weren't having a reported profit. They had some, you know, one-time issues. They were telling the people, "Hey, we're going to be making a profit in four, you know, in four quarters. Then the next quarter, we're going to make a profit in three quarters. Next quarter, two quarters." The, the date wasn't being pushed out. They told you exactly how much money they were going to make. So I was like, "Great, I'll buy it before they make it, and I'll make money." And that's what happened. It was the biggest slam dunk I've ever seen. I think now you have something similar again, just at a higher profit level. They just reported that they are they have an order from the US government or they have they expect to make an additional four million a year in revenue from stockpiling from the US government for you know the defense electronics that they produce. Four million a year over a five year period. I and mean, this was approved last year through the through the Biden administration. And Way that's really interesting is their current revenue is in the range of ten million dollars a year, and so an extra four million a year in revenue on a business of this size. I mean, they're not going to require a bigger facility. They actually went to a smaller facility. They've cut a million dollars of expenses out of their business, and so a million dollars of expenses taken out of a business that's twenty million market cap that's equivalent to a five percent yield just from the expense removal. I mean. It's hard to understate how valuable that is for shareholders. And then you think about the operating leverage that it can be built on top of that with increased revenue. And they have this huge secular tailwind now with European war that's going on. Obviously, that's it's you know 
tragic that that's happening, but it's a, still a tailwind for the business because what NATO's now committing to is to actually for the European partners to all spend their money and spend up at a, the, the agreed 2% per GDP threshold, which should be a long-term driver for the growth of this business. So I just pulled this up. And when did you buy this? Back in 2020? I bought this in 2020. So this is the company I was buying. <laughs> so if you have a stock chart pulled up, I think. Uh, yeah, that's what I just pulled up. So I saw. So if you look at if you look at a stock 10. chart, yeah. So you look at a stock chart. I was basically buying half, fifty percent of the shares transacted for the six month period from March to September of 2020. Wow. Which was, so during that time period, because I mean, we're on an audio format, the shares traded down to a low, I think my lowest lot was $2 a share. The highest lot in that period was somewhere in the 250, 270, you know, 275 range. And so I bought the bulk of my position between $2 and 250. And I have continued buying all the way up. So my most recent purchases were, I think, in the $9 range. And the stock's currently trading at $10.10. But basically, that's what I spent all of my capital on during the, you know, I guess, the COVID drop, which was not not huge for this company because it dropped from three twenty down to two dollars or whatever. But I mean, I was buying at three dollars. I bought it, I think, five dollars. I bought it seven dollars. I mean, I bought eight dollars. I bought it nine dollars. The position's so large now; it might be foolish for me to put new money in because it's, like I said, it's over sixty percent of my portfolio today. I've not sold a single share. So this is a company that I think has a long way to go. I mean, because the idea behind my investment, again, is I invest in companies that I think are going to be 10 baggers. So I bought it to, I think, 287, I think, was my original average price of the original position. And it's like, okay, so 10 bagger from there is 28 bucks. But I think it's probably worth a lot more than that. So I I might hold it substantially past a 10 bagger. I'm not going to sell just because it's 10 bagger. But yeah. And what was the catalyst that caused this big move in stock? Was there a new contract? So this, the, the catalyst, no, well, the catalyst for the big move was that they went from, they were showing a loss. They showed a loss for like three or four years. They had this big, so basically in 2016, there was a change in management. A hedge fund manager had an activist campaign and he took over as a board of director. And then about six months, nine months later, something like that, they ousted the CEO and the CEO was basically allowing the business to fall apart. And so the, they had to come in and basically do a turnaround on the business. Mm-hmm. And so from 2016, 2019, they had a three or four years where they're doing a turnaround on the business and they showed losses for three or four years there. And it was because, you know, they had poor customer service, you know, poor culture, all this stuff. And so they had to turn around the whole business. Well, they completed that. They had some auditing issues associated with it because of how the old management team had done things. And so they lost money having to pay different auditors to come in and help them clean things up. Well, they cleaned it all up. They said, okay, we're done with all these one-time expenses. Our business was profitable for like 20 straight years. We're going to be profitable again now. Like we're done with the turnaround, basically. And they were, they were putting it out. And, and so then I bought before they actually reported the profits. But they were saying like in their you know SEC reports, hey, we're putting out press releases. Like these one-time expenses end in Q3 of 2020 or whatever, something like that. And so when you look at the chart, well, what happens is Q3, Q4, 2020, they spike because they go from having lost money for three years to reporting really good profits. And I actually underestimated it. I thought they were going to be making profits about half a million dollars. They quickly went to you know between a million and $2 million range in profitability. And so 
it doesn't make sense for the company to trade at a PE at a market cap of 5 million when you're earning, you know, $2 million. And so they spike to market cap of 21 million right now, which is still super cheap for a company that's growing double digits a year, has amazing operating leverage. I mean, basically it doesn't cost them like anything else to produce more products. They can expand their revenue probably 5X without building a new facility. Yeah, and they have a they have a great customer too in US defense. They have a great customer. You basically can't lose their they can't lose their business, you know. It's they're in legacy products the last decades. I mean, when you build, you know, when they provide the power component for some of these, you know, weapon systems, you know, whether it's a rocket artillery or something like that or whether it goes into a Mars rover. So if you need maintenance done, you have to buy their part. That has to be like there's no one else that provides it. So there it's now some of those are cost plus, you know, arrangements. It's not like they get to pick whatever price in the world that they want, but they're, it's a very, very stable business, incredibly stable business. I mean, I talk about quality. This is an insanely predictable business. And then now you have the fortunate thing. You have a hedge fund manager as the CEO. And so all the excess cash that's in the business is being invested in stocks, you know, just like early Berkshire Hathaway days. He would hate that comparison. So, but, but I'm an why investor. Would he, why would he hate that because I think he doesn't want expectations put on him, probably. Oh. But I mean, you know, he's buying stocks. I mean, he's investing. You know, he's a hedge fund manager. So like his excess cash, he's like, well, we're going to invest. And I mean, he bought some of these ECIP banks that I mentioned before, and he's been making a killing on them. So like the excess cash in the business is being invested probably from my assessment at market beating returns. So they're making a bunch of cash at a single digit PE. They're growing 10% a year. Or I mean, they're... Their revenue is kind of averaging 10% a year growth, which means their earnings are growing substantially faster than that, in my view. This is not what the company is reporting. This is my assessment of the business. So, you know, of course, I can be wrong or whatever. But and then the cash pile is growing substantially. I mean, because it's being intelligently invested by a specialist in microcap investing. So I think it's great. It has every it has all three components for me, quality, value, and, and capital allocation. And so that's why I've allowed it to grow to a 60% plus position because I think it's very undervalued. I mean, basically my, my view is I, I've basically mapped out in my head is like if they're making four to $5 million a year, you know, two or three years from now and they're growing double digits and the cash is being intelligent invested, what's that work? Like what multiple do you put on a business growing double digits? That's high quality because an earning, you know, four or $5 million a year. If it's, is it a multiple of 10, like it is today? Well, then you're making, you know, then the company doubles to 20 plus, right? And then if you do that in three years, that's a still 20% plus return. But if it's like a 20, then you're talking about maybe a $100 million business and the company's worth $40 a share or $50 a share. Yeah, well, well done on that. That's an investing home run. And just a reminder to the audience, this is a microcap. Do not go out and buy this. Yeah, this is not, this is not advice. I'm um, talking my book. But uh, yeah, uh, this is a super interesting company and, and well done. Okay, so... I think we're ready to wrap up. So do you have anything you'd like to add or and what are the best places to find you at and read your work? I would like to add, because I don't think I've said it, is in general, the, the standard philosophy is microcap investing is, is very risky and dangerous. People should be aware of that. I only do it myself because of how I've, I have a personal belief that it's the easiest place for me to outperform because I have less competition. But there are a lot of companies that are terrible microcaps. And I'd say your average large cap company is going to be a substantially safer investment than your average microcap company. But the top 10% of microcaps are going to be at least a reasonably quality business 
and they're going to be substantially cheaper than anything you've heard of that's in the S&P 500. That's why I do it. But this is definitely buyer beware territory. And I think VSG knows that as well. But I think it's important for listeners. If you, you know, there's a reason that there's a negative perception of microcaps. And if you're going to do investing in microcaps, you need to take extra cautions other where it places in your life. I have a you know, very stable job. I have a supersized emergency fund because I have to be able, microcaps are less liquid. So that's a big danger area. You know, when I was, I basically can't sell my Soltron position because it's, my position is, you know, in the positive percentile of the company's outstanding shares. And there's no, you know, it's very illiquid. So those are risks involved. So like I have, you know, I run emergency fund that instead of like three months, it's like a year of cash because I cannot pull the cash from my portfolio in any reasonable amount of time. So people should be aware of that. There are other things that go into investing in these small companies. They're definitely not something you can just buy into and get out of in the same day like you would with some others. So I think that's important to really caveat because we've not gone on the risk side as much. And it's why I think I can outperform because not everyone's willing to take those risks. But it's also why, you know, you're, if you're listening to a podcast, this is just a podcast. It's not investing in pies. So you need to be aware of the risks in these areas. To find me, I think you mentioned at the top of the show, Twitter is a great place. It's at Trey Henniger. And I think he'll have it, you know, it's just all together there. Subscribe to my Substack if you like written content on investing, whether that's stock ideas, stock research, individual discussions of the market and things like that. I think that's a great place where you can get research to your inbox. I've not posted much just recently, but of course, in my long-term plan is to, to be very active there. And so... Hopefully you can link to that for them there. And then of course my YouTube channel, DIY Investing YouTube channel is where I've been covering three times a week. I'm putting out a video on the S&P 500 companies going through, showing my process and assessing them in 10 to 15 minutes. And I have learned a lot from it. I'm doing every company at S&P 500. So you might already, you can go back in the archive, find some companies you like, listing the watch list ones, which I think are the best. So that's the best place to find me. Very cool. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.